Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll ask how much should Connecticut's wealthy hedge funds be pitching in to close the state's massive deficit? We'll check in with WMPR's Harriet Jones about their attitude towards the fiscal crisis in Hartford. We'll also hear from a New England native who's been serving in the U.S. Army for 18 years. Staff Sergeant Patricia King will talk about her reaction to President Trump's decision to ban transgender service members. King is one of several thousand active duty transgender individuals in the U.S. military. That's according to a 2016 Rand Corporation study. We'll find out what Trump's directive will mean for her career and others. That's later. But first, Ted Hakey Jr. is back on the outside after serving six months in federal prison for a hate crime. On November 14, 2015, Hakey took his rifle and shot into the Ahmadiyya Beitul Aman Mosque near his home in Meriden, Connecticut. He was drunk and angry after seeing reports of the terror attacks in Paris that night. Luckily, no one was injured. He was soon arrested and investigators found several hateful comments Hakey had made about Islam and Muslims on his Facebook page. He went on to plead guilty to intentionally damaging religious property through use of a dangerous weapon. But this story doesn't end in a typical way, where the defendant goes to jail and the community just moves on. What happened after Hakey shot his rifle surprised many, and it made headlines around the world. Joining us now in studio is Ted Hakey Jr. and Zahir Manan, the outreach director of the Ahmadiyya Beitul Aman House of Peace Mosque in Meriden. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I'll start with you, Ted. If you could take us back to that night when uh, you pulled out your rifle and pointed it towards this mosque that was near your home. Do you remember what was going on in your mind at the time? Yes. I went and saw a concert that in Wallingford, Connecticut. Saw a band, Obsession, from the 80s. And I was there with some friends I hadn't seen in a while. And it was a fun night. And I did hear about the Paris attacks earlier that evening. And didn't really think about it. Went and saw the show. Had a good time. Drank a lot of Jack Daniels. Got back to my house. And I looked across. The mosque is right next door. So I looked over there. And I was like, oh, yeah. What about that? And at the time, I, I didn't know anything about uh, Muslims in general. or And I didn't know well, if there's any extremists over there. I, I've never met anyone over there. I didn't meet Zaire. didn't meet anybody over there. So I was a little nervous. And I just kind of thought, well, I have to do something about this. And... The bright idea was I took my rifle and I wanted to shoot some shots and I knew they had cameras over there. So I was hoping to you know, squeeze off some rounds and it would be on the camera and if there was any extremists in there, they would think twice, which was you know, drunk thinking, clearly. So here, tell us about the congregation at the mosque, about you and your family. What was reaction when you found out the next day that someone had fired a rifle into the mosque? Uh, peace be with you. Um, so as Muslims that believe in the Messiah, we took to the Holy Quran for guidance and how to respond. And the Holy Quran says, seek help through patience and prayer. So actually that Friday night, as I usually do on a weekly basis, is that I host a Holy Quran and Bible study. Now we call it coffee cake and conversation on true Islam. And it's still same time, 8 o'clock at five, uh, uh, on Friday night. 
And when we came back a few days later, I believe it was Sunday, when we saw the the bullet wounds that were through the mosque and exited through the building, you know, we were uh, a little bit surprised, of course, uh, a little bit disappointed, first of all, in ourselves that we didn't reach out as well or that there was some shortcoming on our part that we didn't distribute our message properly or disseminate our message. So, you know, we have our sign, love for all, hatred for none outside. We have the American flag in the foyer. But, you know, uh, I was thinking, especially as the outreach director, that where did I go wrong? But like I said, we we betook to patience and prayer. We didn't take the law into our own hands. In fact, the police and the FBI were on the scene immediately. They kind of put themselves in harm's way. So we were grateful in that regard. Um, But being in America and, you know, a country that enshrines religious freedom, you know, you're thinking that, you know, this wouldn't happen. And where the Amity Muslim community is, if not the most persecuted Islamic sect in the world by other Muslims and other people, because we believe the Messiah has come again. And so, you know, we didn't know if this was another Muslim community or whoever, but we were just like, how has the persecution followed us back here to a country where there's freedom? That's interesting. You said that you felt disappointment um, um, in yourselves that you could have maybe reached out to whoever did this. But what about anger or fear? So, uh, yeah, there was a little bit of disappointment and and that anger. The fear, I I wouldn't say as much because, you know, it's based through our experience. Like I said, we're persecuted a lot. A hundred of our members were murdered and martyred just a couple of years ago in Lahore in a drive-by shooting by other Muslims. So, you know, nobody's life uh, was taken and nobody was hurt. And we know this can happen again, but our hopes and our trust and our strength is in our God. And God calls himself the most gracious and the most merciful. So we know that God is going to be there for us as long as we do the right thing and have no personal agendas or political or any other thing involved in this and strictly adhere to the spiritual teachings and abide by them. Our fears are abated through our community, through our God. Ted, uh, the next morning, you obviously slept off the Jack Daniels that you had at the concert. Did you realize what you had done? No, because I didn't think any rounds had actually hit the mosque. So I was, it was business as usual. I, I, that night, I'd seen the Meriden police do a quick drive-through, and they left. Because, and I really didn't think that the mosque was actually hit. I thought it was coming close and shooting into the ground, but that's not what happened. And once the FBI did raid my house, and I came home from work, and it was just filled with cars and I went uh oh and still wasn't quite sure until two days after that my friend called me up and he said uh, did you see the news today and I said no and he said I think you better turn it on I think you're going to see why the FBI was at your house and of course I turned it on and it showed that the rounds had hit what did you do did you fess up oh immediately I called my attorney and said you know because right away it was in the paper they were putting things in there and people were the community was terrified and and they basically labeled me a terrorist, and I said, oh, look, you know, here I wanted to prevent terrorism, and I've become one. And I was quite ashamed, and I quickly spoke to my attorney and said, you know, let's go down there, and I want to clear everything up and put the community at ease. And it took about a month before they actually released everything and arrested me, and mm-hmm. they kind of iced it. And in the meantime, I kept wanting to meet, and I wanted to apologize and, and meet, and they put out the word as well. I believe it was Dr. Kreshi or... Zaire put out in the paper that they wanted to speak to the person who did this. So my attorney was speaking to the FBI saying, hey, you know, they invited it so they couldn't really block it, but they 
they recommended we didn't make any contact. And once they authorized it, we did. So how, uh, how many weeks went by before you actually were able to meet with members of the mosque? Four weeks. What was going through your mind um, heading to, into that meeting? You said that you felt remorse, but were you also, you said also that you were ashamed, but were you nervous about what their reaction would be to you? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, my friends were telling me, they're like, oh, you're, you know, look what you did. They're like, you're going to be on a number one ISIS hit list. What they kind of, they were like, oh, you know, <laughs> they were kind of like that. And so here, fill in the story for us. So Ted uh, Hakey Jr. walks in into this meeting. What were the first uh, words? What was your reaction? So, you know, we had seen Ted before at a, at a court hearing, but we didn't get a chance to communicate with him. We can only talk to the lawyer. But this was arranged at the district attorney's office. And as Ted has mentioned, that we wanted to meet him. And, you know, also there was, of course, some fear from especially the the women and the children you know i have three kids myself and they attend a mosque and they, you know they were like what's going to happen but um again it was based you know the quran says let not a people's enmity incite you to act otherwise than with justice be always just so we thought that how can we be just if we don't know who the shooter is so we wanted to meet we wanted to connect and all that so uh we were there actually my wife was there she wanted to come really badly because she also wanted to send the message that muslim women also come out and do things um <laughs> and uh, also our mosque president was there and then a Ghanaian brother was there who leads our friday prayers and um as soon as ted walked in you could see remorse on his face his cheeks were red he was tearing a little bit you know this big guy that is a true marine you know and looks like a wrestler um he's remorseful you know he could have came in with his head high and um you know uh, proud about what he did but it was the exact opposite mm. ted uh, zahir says that you seemed emotional when you walked into that room what did you say to them i, I apologize and it was the it was a lot of tension in the room, and you know, I didn't really know what to expect. And then I went in, and, and they were sitting in there. You know, Zaire was there, his wife, Dr. Kreshi, and, and it was I was didn't really know what to what to do. And I just you know spoke from the heart, apologized, and I knew that they were there to accept the apology, but I didn't think it was going to be sincere. And they knew I was there to apologize, but they didn't think I was going to be sincere. And I think it was the sincerity of everybody. Is what was so emotional about the the meeting. I mean, even even some of the FBI people had teary eyes in there, and it was it was pretty powerful. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today we're speaking with Connecticut residents Ted Hakey Jr. and Zahir Manan. The men met after Hakey shot his rifle into Manan's mosque in Meriden in 2015. No one was injured. You went on to plead guilty, again, to intentionally damaging religious property. Uh, you mentioned uh, Mr. Qureshi. So here, tell us who this man is with the uh, mosque and what he said at your sentencing. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Mahmoud Qureshi, Muhammad Qureshi, is our mosque president. He's elected to that position. He's been serving voluntarily for over 10 years now. And he's also a director of operations for Humanity First, the sister organization to the MD Muslim community, which is a, a charitable um, humanitarian relief organization all across the world. And so when this shooting happened and, and we got together with Ted and we resolved that misunderstanding because we had m met each other in person. And, you know, so we took to the Quran as well. You know, the Quran says that the recompense of an injury is the like thereof. But if you forgive and your act of forgiveness brings about reformation and a change in the person, it's better to forgive. 
So that's why we had told them that we had already forgiven you before, but we wanted to meet you to see how sincere um, he was. And of course, we can't open the heart and see, but it's a matter of time as well and your actions. So his action that day did show that. And we talked uh, and uh, Dr. Qureshi was like, you know, I want to put together a statement to the judge to let him know that collectively we don't think it's a good idea for him to go to prison. You know, we know of many people who go to prison that don't that shouldn't be there that need to go to other places to help them because that can be a bad environment as well. But but also that he was remorseful and uh, there was really no real harm done besides those bullets and things. But of course, we know that the judge and the uh, federal prosecutor, the uh, assistant district attorney and all them, they also want to send a message to people that in case anybody's thinking about doing this, that this can be something that can hold them back from doing it. Let me ask you, uh, you said no harm was done. God forbid if someone had been injured that night, would the reaction have been different? So, yes. So, um, you know, uh, like I said, I was there that night and we had left only a few hours before the shootings happened with my kids and stuff. If I had stayed over for devotions, which I which I sometimes do, um, I would have been right there, like right in because some of the bullet wounds came through the prayer hall. So if somebody was injured, the thing is that, again, we have to go to the Quran. We have to go to the conduct of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And this is what the Quran says, that those who suppress their anger and pardon others. So, yes, the anger part was there, but we have to rise above it, transcend it, and, and pardon if the occasion calls for it. But we have to look to the conduct of Prophet Muhammad. Had I been hurt or anybody else been hurt, I'm sure our response would have been the same, as our response is the same in Pakistan and countries all around the world where we do get hurt and where people's lives do get taken. And it's not that we're just blindly forgiving them, but if they are truly remorseful and they're sincere about it and they make a change, then everybody deserves a second chance. The most oft-repeated names of God, attributes of God, are the gracious and the merciful. We want to imbibe that in our lives. This, uh, this story of forgiveness captured the attention of many around the world. Uh, Ted, if we could go back to learning a little bit more about you, as Ahir mentioned that you're a, a former Marine. Uh, before that night, had you ever spoken or met a Muslim? Actually, yes. When I went to boot camp, I was in boot camp with a Muslim, and it wasn't really any kind of an issue. On Sunday, he would go to the mosque. I would go to the Roman Catholic Church. The Protestants would go there. We would do our worshiping and, and come back. So it was never, and I spoke to him a little bit about it, and you know, he explained a few things to me and, and what it was about, and it was never really, it was not an issue. It was just, okay, you know, that's what he does and what somebody else does. It wasn't until a combination of, you know, 9-11 when the Marines were shot in, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, it was just a progression of things that would, would build my anger and hatred. Mm. Tell us more about um, the misconceptions that that you had over the years and and where you think uh, when we look at today's climate um, in this country with people's uh, over-reliance on social media, um, how did that influence what happened that night as well or, or influence your mind to see Muslims as the enemy, as terrorists, as you saw them that night? Well, that was a huge part of it. It was in my social media was bombarded with all kinds of anti-Islam things and I had no idea what the actual the Holy Quran actually said. I, I never read it before, and I my, I only knew about what people would put up in quotes. And I was always told that Muslims are are required to kill Christians and Jews. They're required for for jihad, which when I learned in jihad was has a different meaning. And you get these 
impressions that it's completely wrong. And I didn't realize that until I did some research and sat down with, with Zaire and read the Holy Quran and became educated. And it wasn't just that. It was more the conduct of Muslims around the world after my apology. My my Twitter and Facebook were what blew up with messages, and there was not one negative one. They all said, thank you for apologizing. And it, that was shocking because every time I'd get a message request, I'm like, oh, boy, what's this going to say? And and I would open it up, and it, they surprised me each time. from all the, And I still continue to get them all over the world. You mentioned Muslims around the world have reached out to you. But what about Americans like yourself? What did they think of your story after after you came forward? It's hit and miss. Some... Some thought that, you know, I was just doing it to try to get less jail time here, that, then, you know, some were, and then some were questioning the sincerity of the acceptance of the apology of the Muslims. They were kind of saying, no, they're just, they're just trying to trick you and, and let you think you're forgiven. But I, I explained to them, no, you had to be there because as soon as this happened, the apology was over. When people would ask questions about, you know, what happened that night during interviews and things like that, Sayer and Dr. Kreshi would get very uncomfortable. They, they said, no, 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 we don't want to talk about that anymore. That's gone. And immediately that the forgiveness was so sincere with them it was it was it was gone and before i was even went to uh, sentenced to you know, federal prison i actually went to their jalsa in pennsylvania so this was shortly after the shooting i actually rode in the car with zaire and his family so that showed you the level of forgiveness and trust that they had so you spoke at a, a conference uh, before the Ahmadiyya community is that what you're referencing yes it was the jalsa in in harrisburg pennsylvania mm. You went on to serve, I think it was last August when you went into federal prison? Yes. So six months in, in federal prison? Yes. Your friendship didn't end. Is that, is that here? Did you visit? Uh, yes, I did. Um, I try to visit um, every other week. I think I got to visit like six or, or quite a few times. Or seven times. You know, I wanted to invest time. I mean, you know, I had to make a sacrifice as well, but the you know, this connection is sincere. It's real. And also because, like Ted is saying, many people were asking that or, you know, throwing that out there that, oh, you only ask for forgiveness because you're scared of prison or and they only forgave you because they want to look good to people and things like that. But in reality, people don't see what's happening in the background. They don't see what's happening, all the investment, all, all the time that you put in there. And Ted became more than a brother to me because not only did he come and apologize to our mosque shortly after we met him the first time, and that's where that picture of us hugging went viral, but he also prayed with me and he didn't have to. He even has an injury and he still prayed with me. And I said, you know, you don't have to. You could sit there and watch. He goes, no, I want to join you in prayer. So when he bowed his head in, in, in humility and uh, humbleness right next to mine, I felt like he was a brother. I felt that it was my bro- brotherly duty to go and meet him, to give him that support, and you know, also to put myself in his position. You Sometimes you have to put yourself in other people's shoes to realize their suffering and what they're going through and to show that moral support. Ted, when were you released from federal prison, and what's life been like for you now? I think it was Jan- January 26, I think it was when I was out, and it's kind of just put the life back together, back to work, and it just kind of, you know, it, not a lot has really, I, I guess a lot has changed, but I didn't let a lot change. I just kind of, you know, got back to work and and just got back to life. How are you continuing uh, to reach out to people who, again, we mentioned social media earlier, it's so easy to share misinformation on Facebook or to attack people online. How do you react to people that way, um, using social media 
to further what you guys are talking about now, this idea of we have a lot more in common than differences and we need to take time to learn from each other. Oh, there's just so many examples and just you could just somebody will put a post up on maybe Facebook and it'll be a, a misquote of the Holy Quran and then I'll I'll correct them and, and show them you know, well no, this is what it really means and this is what it says and, and people are very surprised. It's it's amazing how similar the Quran and the Bible actually are. And most people don't even know that that the in Islam that they that Jesus is a prophet. They think that they don't believe in Jesus and they want to kill Jesus and all that. It's, it's that's not the case. How have you seen the Meriden community change like here, not just in within the Ahmadiyya Beitul Aman Mosque, but in the community at large? Yeah, I mean, a week after the shooting actually happened, we had an open house and the whole community came together. This was beyond any superficial divides that people would think would prevent people from coming from Jewish community, Christian community, atheist community, many other communities, senators, Congress, the mayor. Everybody kind of came together in solidarity to show support, to show the love, and to tell us that that they're there with us. And um, that was really important because never before had so many people come to our house of peace. This whole incident became a jihad in the true sense of the word, which is a struggle, a striving for righteousness and connection with God. This helped us to get connected to our fellow human beings. And we, as the outreach director, I've been trying to reach so many people of different demographics and things. But I have to say that when this happened and throughout the course of it, as as Ted got the messages, I also got messages and from different people that I never knew existed that were right our next door neighbors. And they were just saying that this really opened up our eyes. And so it was a blessing in disguise for us. It was a, a miracle of Quranic and biblical proportions. And, uh, you know, again, Ted himself brought so many of his friends, his own friends, that, you know, uh, ha- you know, they have tattoos and, you know, and they look like those tough guys. And, and they're coming into the mosque very humbly. They're listening to the program. They're asking questions. Um, one, uh, one of Ted's friends, he brought to our Eid celebration, which is uh, right after Ramadan. And, uh, and also the other one, which is the Eid of Sacrifice, commemorating the Abraham sacrifice. And he brought one of his friends. And he came on a motorcycle, actually. And it was just so beautiful to see that Ted was touched that much that he invited his friends. He was ready to jeopardize his relationship with his friends to show them what Islam was really about. Ted, what were your friends' reactions when they were able to to visit? Well, they had f- followed it along, and this, a couple of them came to me and they said, "Wow, you know, we want to come down and I want to I want to see this." He said, "I followed it and I see the forgiveness." And he said, "I, I think I have the wrong idea of Islam, and I'd like to investigate it for myself." Mm. Do you get discouraged, though, because this all happened in 2015, um, and, and since the election, I'm sure you've heard uh, federal authorities say hate crimes in this country have spiked. Mm-hmm. Do you get discouraged that while you're making a change here locally, it's not reverberating around the country? There's still pockets of hatred. I think that's going to change. And and as Dr. Kresh, he said, you know, and with one drop at a time into, into the ocean. So here? Yeah, I mean... Um, we were hoping that, that by the the real sincere story, this miracle that happened of reconciliation, 
that it would reach um, the masses. And it really did. It became international news, national news and international news. And actually, our video is featured on our True Islam campaign website, trueislam.com, where you can go and endorse our 11 values. But we were hoping that this would prevent future divide, break barriers, uh, bridge those gaps that are there in society. Um, you know, Islamophobia is just one of the forms of hatred. There's anti-Semitism, anti-immigrant, anti-black, which has been a struggle going on. So we were hoping that this would be a model, a paradigm for people, um, and it would prevent even uh, loss of lives and it would save lives because, you know, p- uh, violence can get to that, uh, escalate to that level of people's lives being lost. And to a certain extent, it did. Many people around the world heard about this story from Germany, Australia, London, all over the world. They were sending messages and saying, this is such a beautiful message. And But uh, yeah, of course, when, when the new administration came in, actually, what was interesting is that you know, we were really careful about saying that we are against injustice and hatred, but not against any individual. What this incident taught us is that the, the you know you you hate the sin, not the sinner. So the person can always change around, have a reformation, have a transformation. Um, so uh, and people showed their support again. It was a, exactly a year after, actually, <laughs> that the administration came in. But um, yes, uh, it is a little bit disappointing to see that. Uh, you know, hate crimes are on the rise. Islamophobia is on the rise. They say six out of ten Americans don't know a Muslim. That's Pew Research, um, and we're and we're working to bridge that gap. But um, you know, this is not going to happen overnight. Humans will still be humans. The ignorance will still be considered as bliss. Uh, the memes on social media and Google will always be there for people to go and type in things rather than coming to meet a person. But what we are suggesting is that come and meet a Muslim in person. Uh, build a friendship with them. Get Get off on the right foot on your commonalities, on common ground. Everybody has differences, but that's a beauty. Um, Come to understand how we're in the fight for the same struggle for justice, righteousness, peace, and, um, you know, godliness. Well, Ted uh, Hakey and Zahir Manan, thank you so much for coming in. We thought it was important to to follow up on the story again. It made headlines uh, uh, when the community welcomed you um, and... Uh, accepted your apology. But we thank you for coming in to tell us a little bit about how your friendship continues. Thank you, Ted. Thank you. Thank you. Peace. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we check in on what's happening in the U.S. military since President Trump's tweet banning transgender individuals from serving. Are you a member of the military or a veteran? What's your take? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Less than one week ago, President Trump tweeted that transgender individuals will be barred from serving in the U.S. military. His ban unravels a 10-month-old Pentagon policy that has allowed transgender troops to serve openly. Coming up, we'll find out just how many service members we're talking about and whether there have been any changes in the way the military operates since the president's tweet. Are you a veteran or a current service member? What's your take? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, if the ban becomes policy, it will impact people like U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Patricia King. She's a native of Cape Cod, but joins us today by phone from Fort Lewis, Washington, where she's stationed. Uh, Patricia, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I understand you've been in the military for 18 years. Tell us about why you chose to enlist. 
Um, that's right. I've been serving for almost two decades now. Originally, I decided to enlist in the military because I kind of wanted to figure out who I was. Um, and I mean that in so many senses of the word. But it wasn't long after I enlisted in the military that I found how much I just I loved the opportunity to serve my country and that sense of camaraderie. And that's what's kept me coming back. And when did you first come out as transgender? I came out first to my family and then to everyone else starting in January of 2015. And why did it take that long? Tell us about that. You know, I knew I was trans or knew that I was different starting when I was about eight years old. But I just wasn't sure what to do with that um, as I went through puberty and adolescence. Um, I... I ended up repressing these feelings and thoughts, and while they were something I lived with, I just kind of carried them in the background. And as I got older, it became harder and harder to ignore this sense of who I was. Eventually, I felt like I wanted to live that authentic life and that it was it was time to be honest with myself. So what was that like to not only come out to your family, but also to your military commanders and to uh, your colleagues? Um, I waited for such a long time that while there was a sense of anxiety about it, the need to be true to myself and be authentic far outweighed that. And it, honestly, it was a sense of relief. It was no longer this barrier to living my life. We, we know that uh, last year, then-Secretary of Defense Ash Carter announced that transgender service members could serve openly in the military. But before that announcement, uh, tell us what that meant for you. So you had to serve as a male under male standards in the U.S. military? Uh, so when I came out and I started living an authentic life, um, I kind of coined the phrase that I was a female living under male standards um, because whether or not the military could legally accept my gender. The, the bottom line was I was being authentic. I was being true. People knew who I was. Um, people were still using female pronouns. While I may have had to keep a shorter haircut, maybe a more androgynous haircut, I was still living that authentic life. Um, I was just using a set of standards that were not correct for my gender. This is where we live. Uh, we're exploring uh, the fallout uh, since President Trump's tweet last week that uh, service members, transgender service members, uh, should be banned from the U.S. military. On the phone with us is U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Patricia King. Uh, she's originally from Cape Cod. She's stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington, and she was ser is serving as an openly transgender individual in the U.S. Army. Uh, since that tweet came out, uh, Patricia, you know, what has been your reaction? Uh, because, again, you were able to be open and, and serve in one way under Defense Secretary Ash Carter's uh, policy change. And now with President Trump's uh, tweet to ban all transgender individuals, what does that mean for you? I woke up on the day that the tweets came out. And because of the time zones, uh, this had happened prior to me waking up in the morning. I woke up and my phone was just exploding. Uh, I, I am a leader in a nonprofit organization that supports transgender service members. 
And so I had so so many people reaching out to me saying, what does this mean? Was I just, uh, are we, can we continue to serve people that were still closeted saying, should I not come out? Do I have to live my life in the closet in order to serve? And, and I didn't even know what had happened. So I did the research and I found out what had happened. I thought to myself, that first reaction was, did I just get fired via tweet? Um, you know, like what, what is going on? Um, and so um, I got up and I laced up my boots and I headed to work. And the truth was, nobody at work had even known this happened. Uh, when I told my leaders, when I told my boss that uh, this had happened, I was the first place that they had heard about it. And this was the case uh, up through the echelons in the chain of command. But nobody even knew what was going on. Um, this was something that came to the military very much by surprise. Um, so um, I still had a job and we had to figure out what this meant for all of us. Uh, to give us some more uh, perspective on what this means for the U.S. military, uh, joining the conversation is Leo Shane III. He's Capitol Hill Bureau Chief for Military Times at MilitaryTimes.com. Leo, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for the invite. Uh, so tell us, uh, we just heard from Staff Sergeant Patricia King that uh, she believes that the military was completely blindsided by uh, President Trump's uh, tweet last week. Um, you've been covering uh, veterans affairs in the military for some time. What was happening behind the scenes? Was this completely out of the blue? Uh, it was It was certainly a surprise for most folks at the Pentagon and most folks through the Defense Department. Um, we've, uh, we've pushed the White House on a couple of things. Secretary of Defense Mattis did get some advance warning on this, but it's not clear how much input he had on this. seems to have come uh, just from the White House and from a real small group of people. So, uh, you know, much like uh, Staff Sergeant King's story there, most of the military folks we, we talked to the day of the tweets um, were shocked. We're shocked that there was any policy change. They were under the impression that we were still going through a six-month review of this policy, that sometime this winter we'd see maybe some changes, maybe some adjustment. But but this, this series of just three tweets seem to have thrown the entire policy uh, into flux. Now, um, explain to us what the uh, opposition is to having transgender individuals in the military. I know that last week a lot of the uh, conversations circled, uh, centered around uh, the cost for hormones or for sex reassignment surgery if someone were to choose uh, that option. Right. Most of the most of the conversation from conservatives, most of the objections have focused on two things. One is morale, and one is the the cost. So, on the morale side, there's been the argument that because uh, because transgender individuals are are different, because there's uh, certain accommodations that might have to be made for them, they're going to disrupt military operations. It's going to be disruptive to the force. We haven't seen any real studies on that. In fact, the uh, the studies that DOD conducted last year before they decided to allow open transgender service seem to contradict that. Uh, but there's quite a few conservatives that still say, no, this is, you know, this is going to be a problem. On the cost issue, when, when DOD announced last year that they would be providing, that, that transgender folks could serve openly, um, they said they would provide certain, uh, certain uh, surgeries, certain hormone therapies, certain medical services uh, to be determined. Um, we've heard from folks on Capitol Hill that that could range up to $150 million a year, but most of the estimates we've seen from from DOD and from outside groups is that it's closer to six to eight million dollars a year. So a lot of confusion over what the what the cost would be, and frankly, a lot of exaggeration when we're talking about a, a DOD budget that's over six hundred billion dollars. 
And uh, Leo, can you give us an idea of how many transgender individuals serve right now in the military? And do we know how many are even deployed? Yeah, we've got a we've got a wide range on those estimates. Outside groups have said they they suspect it's as many as fifteen thousand people. DOD last fall said they were looking more in the six thousand to seven thousand uh, person range, but since they uh, since they uh, made the policy change last year uh, and allowed folks to serve openly, it's only been a few hundred who have actually uh, registered for medical services. Have sort of you know by de facto. Uh, registered with DOD as transgender. So uh, obviously the number is probably higher than that for a lot of folks. They won't necessarily need uh, medical services or, 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 you know, might be, uh, might be discussing that in the future. But, uh, you know, it's a, a small population when you're talking about, uh, you know, a military of more than a million and a half um, service members. Uh, but even if you take just a few thousand out of key roles, uh, that can have a pretty significant impact on military readiness. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to take a listener call now. Uh, Thad is calling from Southbury. Thad, you're on the show. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. Go ahead. Well, uh, I served 34 years, both in the Navy and the Air Force, and uh, uh, my perspective is we accommodate in the military a wide range of people with a wide range of interests and backgrounds and uh, body types and genders and, and uh, you know, so that issue to me, the gen- transgender issue to me is really a moot point. Uh, I would be more concerned, uh, as your previous uh, caller just said, uh, about the costs of people coming into the military and then having the military pick up the bill for uh, sex change operations, for hormone therapy and, and the like. Uh, I don't think that the the public and the taxpayers really uh, want to encourage people to come in the military so that they can have operations and, and, and spend public money. Uh, if it's something that's life-threatening, yes, but otherwise I would be against uh, the uh, military or the taxpayers uh, footing the bill for those kind of operations. Now, Thad, can I ask you, uh, we were just speaking to a staff sergeant uh, based in Fort Lewis, Washington. Patricia King's been serving in the Army for 18 years. Um, it sounds like Patricia enlisted because she wanted to serve in the U.S. military, not to get health care. Um, can you exp- talk a little bit about the investment? You said that you um, were in the Navy. The investment, taxpayer investment, in training people to do very specific jobs for the military. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not under the impression that people are lining up to join the military. Patricia seems to be someone that plays a vital role for the U.S. Army. Well, I don't doubt that uh, there are many people out there that are playing vital roles and have been well-trained and, and do their job well. Um, but if if I decided to have elective surgery for just about anything and going and asking the military to pay for it, I don't think that, that, uh, that the taxpayers really are, are excited about that aspect of it. Um, I think the training that's invested in these people, I don't think you should just arbitrarily kick them out of the military because... You don't like the way they look or they, uh, they talk or, or something like that. Uh, as long as they meet military standards and military qualifications in their career field, um, I don't see any reason why they should be in danger of losing their jobs. On the other hand, I don't think taxpayers should have to pay for things that aren't uh, medically necessary. All right, Thad, thank you so much for your call and comment. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I want to have Staff Sergeant Patricia King respond to our, our listeners' comments. Patricia? Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. So I have a a couple of thoughts on that. Um, First of all, I want to cover what 
the previous Secretary of Defense said, which was that all medically necessary care would be covered. People are often quick to use the term elective surgery or elective care. The Secretary of Defense left this and said all medically necessary care. Um, As we've come to understand transgender people, insurance companies have started to cover the medically necessary care as well. Many insurance companies, many employers have started to cover um, gender reassignment surgery because it's recognized by the medical community, the American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, as potentially medically necessary care. And only a doctor can determine what is medically necessary. So if after meeting a transgender individual and going through the process of assessing that individual, the doctor determines that to be medically necessary. Um, If I break my arm, a doctor determines if I need a cast or a splint or something like that. If I have um, a, a busted liver, a doctor determines whether or not that needs to be removed. And no person would ever question that. If a doctor determines that a surgery is medically necessary, we trust that doctor. Furthermore, I'd like to point out that people enlist in the military for any number of reasons. There are service members who take advantage of the Army's loan repayment program. A person who goes to college for four years gets a degree. They don't come in as an officer. They come in as a specialist, an E-4 in the Army, and the Army forgives up to $65,000 of loans for them. Another person perhaps enlists in the military so that they can receive that college money going forward with through the GI Bill, sixty-five or $70,000 to go towards college. There are all sorts of reasons for enlisting. However, I don't know that there's anybody who's ever enlisted in the military to receive a surgery as a transgender person. Remember that a study has proven that transgender people historically have been had a propensity twice as high as a cisgender person to enlist. And this has been prior to open trans service. One in five transgender people who has been surveyed across the country has said that they serve or have served. That's 20% as opposed of the surveyed people, as opposed to about 12% of the the population at large who says that they have served or or do currently serve. Um, So we've had a propensity to serve even without the opportunity for surgery. So I think that we have to look at all of those things when we talk about medically necessary care. I want to go back to Leo Shane, the third Capitol Hill bureau chief for Military Times. So, Leo, what happens now? And I'm I'm seeing reports that there are possible lawsuits that might be happening if this moves forward. Sure. Well, right now we're in we're in a holding pattern. Uh, you know, folks like Staff Sergeant King I just just don't know where we're going to be um, after the president's tweets, which seemed pretty clear that he was interested in in getting transgender folks out of the military and not allowing transgender folks to enlist. Um, we heard from the Joint Chiefs Chairman, uh, General Dunford, who said, we haven't received an official policy from the White House yet, so until we do, uh, nobody's in danger of losing their jobs. Uh, we uh, will treat all personnel with respect. Uh, the question comes, when does the White House decide to send a policy down, and what, what exactly will that mean? So um, White House hasn't really indicated any sort of timeline, and until then, um, everything's just in a holding pattern, which means transgender folks uh, who are in the service can serve um, and but are, have this uh, you know have this issue hanging over their heads the DOD had already delayed um, a policy change that would have allowed transgender folks to uh, to enlist uh, you know new recruits 
Um, it was supposed to go into effect July 1st, and there's a, a six-month pause on that policy uh, while they review some of the questions that the first caller brought up, you know, issues of folks who may enlist for, for medical benefits or things like that, whether or not um, there's some underlying issues. But none of that was supposed to affect folks who are, who are in the service now, um, and that's sort of what's put everything into, into flux again. We're going to have to leave it there. Leo Shane, Capitol Hill Bureau Chief for Military Times at MilitaryTimes.com. Leo, thank you for the explainer. Oh, no, thank you. And Staff Sergeant Patricia King, a native of Cape Cod, stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington again. She served in the U.S. military for 18 years. Uh, Staff Sergeant King, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we shift back to Connecticut politics and the state's fiscal crisis. What role, if any, do hedge fund companies have in helping Connecticut? WNPR's business reporter Harriet Jones will explain. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Still no budget deal at the state capitol. Advocates for social services say the state should increase taxes on the wealthy to pay for the safety net. But Governor Malloy and some state lawmakers are not on board with that proposal. WNPR's Harriet Jones recently spoke to Connecticut's wealthy hedge funds to see how they view the fiscal crisis in Hartford. Her story will be airing on Marketplace uh, in the next few days. Harriet, thanks for coming on the show today. You're welcome, Lucy. So tell us, uh, who did you speak with in terms of, of the hedge funds that, that sit in the uh, the southwest corner of our state? Yeah, so there's about 400 hedge funds that manage about $750 billion in assets, in, in investors' assets managed in that kind of corner centered around Greenwich. I went to speak with Bruce McGuire, who's the president of the Connecticut Hedge Fund Association. And that association has been kind of focused in the past, more on kind of networking between the funds and educational seminars, that type of thing. But this session, they got very heavily involved in lobbying at the Capitol. Um, Bruce McGuire told me that, you know, until very recently, hedge funds have mostly been focused towards Wall Street um, and towards Washington, D.C. So, you know, reading the Wall Street Journal, thinking about regulatory matters in Washington, D.C., not so focused on perhaps reading the Hartford Current and, you know, focusing on what's going on at the Capitol in Hartford. But he said that somewhat changed the session because there was a bill that came up for, um, it came up for a public hearing. Um, it didn't go any further than that, but it would have changed the way the hedge fund managers pay tax and made them pay tax at a much higher rate. And it was aimed at, you know, a way to kind of close this budget gap. So Bruce McGuire of the Connecticut Hedge Fund Association told me he doesn't believe people in Connecticut really understand the industry. I think there's also this misperception that the hedge fund industry is made up of only a handful of billionaires. Um, so easy targets if you're looking to raise capital uh, or needing to, to plug a, a budget deficit. I don't think there's a full appreciation as to the middle income people that work at these firms. You know, some of these firms employ a thousand or more people. Now, Harriet, we just have a couple of minutes left. I understand that bill went nowhere after the hedge funds uh, were lobbying um, and the assurance of the governor that he wouldn't sign it. But uh, what was what's going to happen in terms of, you know, moving forward? Because, again, there's a huge uh, budget deficit and they are pretty wealthy. They've I know Bridgewater has gotten uh, you know, sizable uh, tax breaks by the state of Connecticut. I mean, what's the next steps? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's extremely unlikely that anything would go through. The, like you said, the governor has given assurances to the industry, and McGuire told me he's personally had assurances from the governor that he wouldn't sign a bill that raises taxes on the wealthy. Uh, McGuire said, you know, there would have been a very negative reaction from the industry if this had been signed, and he said there actually was a very ne- negative reaction even just for, from it being considered. Um, and he, he said, you know, you could have seen uh, hedge funds considering moving to other lower-tax states, perhaps Florida. This is not a heavy industry, right? This is, uh, we're not talking about, you know, big plants and, and heavy equipment. We're talking about people with cell phones and Bloomberg terminals that can be very portable. So I guess the question is, why haven't they left if it's that easy for them to do business anywhere, Harriet? Well, Greenwich is is a very prestigious address for a hedge fund. So Greenwich actually is the center of the third largest um, agglomeration of hedge funds in the world. So New York City, London, then Greenwich. So, you know, having a Greenwich address is considered very prestigious. And there's also an ecosystem around the hedge funds, the support companies, there's the expertise here. So, uh, you know, for now, um, it's considered a good place to be. Uh, now, we, uh, we're almost out of time, Harriet. I understand they don't want to be uh, treated as the state piggy bank. But in terms of, you know, what's going to happen with the future of both the hedge fund industry and the state? I mean, there's no one really has an answer to uh, where they're going to get this extra revenue to pay for social services. I know in your story for Marketplace, you're also speaking uh, to people that rely on social services heavily in the state. Right. So it's this balance between do you cut services do you raise more revenue in terms of perhaps raising taxes, um, or do you go back to the state employee unions? And the unions are the ones that specifically within the last week or so raised that question of, okay, we, the middle-class folk, have, have you know stepped up and saved the state a billion and a half dollars over two years. Why isn't it time to go back to the billionaires? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Hedge Fund Association is saying, well, you know what, um, it's not fair to single us out. We didn't cause this problem just because we're highly compensated. It's not, you know... It's not our problem to solve is essentially their their position. So no easy answers. Harriet Jones, WNPR's business reporter. And when can we hear your story on Marketplace? Not sure yet. Hopefully within the next week or so. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Harriet. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Today's show is produced by Jeff Tyson. Special thanks to WMPR intern Tim Cohen. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer, Katie Talarski. You can learn more about our show at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>